0: This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena De Groot. Today, hope in odd places. A few years ago, Sally Wen Mao came across a news story. A young woman in Shanghai had posted her suicide to Instagram. Her followers had looked every step of the way, sending her hearts and likes. For Sally, a Chinese-American poet... Something in this story felt familiar. That sense of being looked at, but not seen. She started researching and found more examples. Afong Moy, the first Chinese woman to come to America, only to be displayed like a live doll. Or Anna Mae Wong, the Hollywood actress, who was as famous as you could get from only being asked for Stereotypical roles such as Wicked Dragon Lady. But Sally's poetry collection, Oculus, is not a depressing read. And that's because Sally Wenmao puts all of her imagination to work for these women. She gives them a voice, a rich inner life, and sometimes even an alternative future. Although it starts in that most trying place, the internet. When I was reading your work, I had this feeling of what the internet used to feel like before social media, before algorithms, and when the internet was still full of rabbit holes, you know, people just blogging about the things they were obsessed about, like, I don't know, Soviet architecture or, or vampire fan fiction or something. <laughs> are you good at resisting the pull of the algorithm? Do you still go online like that, where you just follow your own curiosity?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a big part of my process, actually, is going (laughs) down the internet rabbit hole, whether it's JSTOR or Wikipedia or fanfiction.net. But I am also reading all those think pieces. I am also on Twitter. Um, I also yeah. obsessively check Jezebel all the time, every day. So I don't think I don't think I rise above any anyone else. <laughs>
0: So why don't we um, go to a poem where there is so much research uh, in there? And I was thinking we could start with a very long poem um, about this wildly popular exhibition from a few years ago called Bodies, where real human bodies had been dissected so you could see the muscles and organs to learn about anatomy, I suppose, Um but there was a problem with where these bodies actually came from. Yes, yes. Um, do, When did you hear the rumor? And can you, for people who don't know it, can you just explain what, what this is?
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I wrote this poem after kind of reading a bunch of internet articles <laughs> um, about the provenance of these bodies and how there were a lot of rumors that the bodies came from corpse plants from China and that they belonged to uh, dissidents or people who who were imprisoned. So, I mean, it was very disturbing. And I went through many hours reading about plastination, Mm -hmm. which is the method that is used to preserve these bodies and Allow them to be displayed. Um, and and kind of knowing how the Chinese are, you know, I think mm. there is this preference for burial, right? Yeah. Um, so that really fascinated me and it, it it made me think back to history where actual live humans were were on display as exhibitions, yeah.
0: In Oculus, this poem is many pages long, so on the podcast you'll hear an excerpt. Here is Sally with the poem
1: Provenance of Vivisection. One You, you are a factory of muscle. You, you are an empire of polymer. I recognize myself in your face, your posture, your severed epiglottis. Take it off, take it all off for us to see, first the clothes, then the epidermis, then your mouth, your country, your context. Exhibit A, Hottentot Venus, 1810. Pregnant woman from village X reclining nude in lit interior excision watch the womb peeled back see what milkless plastic the baby suckles how he crows against the vernix of his mother's plastic glue trap exhibit b chang and Un 1829 exhibit c afan moy 1834 exhibit d Oda Benga St. Louis World Fair 1904 It's a simple exchange we will pay for you your hanging organs our garden gelatins astound us fill us with relief for what we have golden hearts that rouge the very air around lungs that breathe gills that sing we are an abattoir of gratitude. Four. This is a fatty market. It blooms a corpulent flower, body suppliers, Raphosia, rapeseed. Boom boom drones the Dalian corpse plant. Production line, technicians dehydrate faces, bones, cartilage, soak the cadavers in pink effluvia. Autopsy hour, watch the fatty tissues sap, seep, curdle. Watch the sticky plastic pump into their ribs, ravish them. Kiss the cadaver with a scalpel, knives pair their eyes. Bad pears, cores swarm with gnats, millipedes, worm seeds. Insects coil over their golden flesh, their mouths are blood diamonds. Rumor has it the world is gorging on Chinese secrets. Cover this wound before the flies find it.
0: Thank you so much. I think there's this narrative with a lot of this racial history that is often offered to soothe ourselves. Like, this was a long time ago, you know, 19th century. We had these human zoos. Um, We would never do that today, you know? Mm -hmm. And what is so chilling about your poem is that you show that, well, in a way, we still do display human bodies against their... There was never any consent given, probably, yes, uh, as as you just mentioned. Do you remember how you figured
1: out how similar those things are? Um, so I think I wrote this poem. it It, it had to be many years ago. Um, the advertisements were still everywhere. Every city that I went to, I would see a billboard for that exhibition. so, I was really thinking about the ways that we advertise things and also what gets to be consumed. Um, so so Afong Moy, the first Chinese woman to be shipped to the United States, was also kind of on display um, in order to sell something, in order to push a product.
0: Yeah, totally. Can you... Introduced the merchants who actually um, paid maybe her father for her to come over to America?
1: Yeah, so there were a couple of merchants, uh, the Carn brothers. In some accounts, they're brothers, and in other accounts, they're cousins. Um, uh-huh. So they had a lot of stakes in China trade, and they really wanted to bring these kind of exotic Chinese objects to this emerging middle class in the U.S. Things like scrolls and um, furniture, writing desks, pictures on the walls, uh, Mm. snuff boxes, uh, Mm -hmm. shawls, Mm -hmm. like silk shawls, um, things that are mass produced in China. Uh, They wanted to bring that to the U.S. market. And the way that they did it was to present Afan Moy, a living... Chinese woman who might be using the chair or counting on the abacus or eating rice in front of the spectators. So oh, wow. in a way, they they were less interested in kind of the museum element mm. than the marketing. They wanted to really sell these items. Wow, that is, that
0: is so interesting. I mean, I... I I was feeling so ashamed of the fact that, you know, I had never heard of her, that on top of, like, the terrible thing that happened to her where she was exhibited for white people to gawk at, that then also her name was more or less erased from history. Um, it, or or do, is that just from, from my history? Like, did you already... Had you already come across her
1: earlier? Or how did that happen? Actually, you know, I, I don't think that she is a very significant name in history. I came across her as almost like a side note in a history book about the Chinese in America. And then after that, I, I went down my usual internet rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> and so I actually went back to this poem, Provenance, and I added her name in, into the inventory of exhibitions. Oh, wow. I tried to dig up as much information about her as possible, but um, on the level of history, she is forgotten. Right. I've actually been reading the first nonfiction book about her came out recently. Mm -hmm. It's called The Chinese Lady, um, Afong Uh Moy in Early America. Um, and so much of that book describes the context that Afan existed in. But mm. there weren't that many actual records. Like a lot of this book that I'm reading is like she could have been this or she might have done that. <sighs> yeah.
0: What also intrigued me about the story is that she had bound feet. Mm-hmm. And if I remember this correctly, bound feet is something that only women in higher classes in China did because, of course, you had to, I mean, you weren't terribly mobile if you had bound feet. So this was not a, something that people who had to work for a living uh, did. Yes. Um, so how does a higher class woman end up on a boat to America in order to be displayed? How Do you know how that even happened?
1: Well, um, She could have been the daughter of a merchant because she came from Canton or Guangzhou. And that was literally the only port at the time where Americans were allowed to trade with China. I think the rest of China was closed off. Mm -hmm. And definitely like, you know, women of higher classes with bound feet tend not to have public life. They Mm -hmm. tend to stay in the house and perhaps, like, learn embroidery, things like that. There were really not that many opportunities at the time for these women to see the world. So Afon Moy, she is in a lot of ways the first Chinese woman to do these things. Um, She went to D.C., Baltimore. She even went south to Charleston. And at some point, she was in Cuba. Um, Mm. So it's this journey that really caught my attention and also the gall it takes you know (laughs) that gave me such an itch to to fill in the blanks you know um because Mm -hmm. there are so many blanks yeah
0: Do you think that she was more or less a prisoner? Or do you think that she had her own way of thinking, this is my business adventure or something?
1: Yeah, so I think it's, it's very complicated, right? It, it probably wasn't her decision to, you mm-hmm. know, go on this tour. It was probably, you know, either her father or, or somebody who had some power over her. But even though she mm-hmm. was kind of this object to be displayed and gawked at. I'm just imagining how rich her inner experience um, was as she's going on these like adventures that have never been undertaken before. There's such a ripe space there to kind of reconstruct a narrative um, with a better imagination. The Diary of Afong Moy. Number eight, Park Place, Manhattan, November, 1834. The merchant brothers who brought me here, Freddie and Nate Carn, knew I'd make it rain for them. In their eyes, I was a hothouse flower, a goddess of dollar signs. They decorated me with precious imports, baubles, yellow pantaloons, damasks, then place me in a diorama of snuff boxes and silk. I was a breathing mannequin on my brocade throne. I couldn't believe how many people paid to see me. Banknotes dropped, jawbones dropped, and it was truly unnerving to watch the white people stare at me, mouths twitching in awe or pity or both. The men looked at my little feet, the women at my regalia. They wanted to see my feet uncovered. Can you believe the nerve? The podiatrists, the reporters begged for a glimpse. At the men, I snickered. At the women, I smiled. They swooned, blushed, as if they swallowed Sichuan peppercorns. Their corsets were killing them. Heavens, a grotesquerie, their spines all crooked in their skeletons. I raised my brows, ensconced in my civilized box. I counted the days with my abacus. Look, I was fucking bored. Was I the animal here, or were they? On my throne in lonely New York, I presaged my own descent. It began with a tongue, english creature that curled its way into my mouth they called me the celestial princess i wanted them to bow down so they did they fell at my feet in penance or worship a vernissage of my ancestors across my face a slap
0: this is so wonderful i love how you turn the whole story on its head you know, instead of making her this poor woman with the bound feet, she's making fun of these white women with their backs all messed up in corsets. And um yeah, you know, she's not afraid to, to also turn around the power balance. They called me the Celestial Princes. I wanted them to bow down. So they did.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, So, you know, what's funny is like I... I mean, obviously, I don't have all the information. So some of this is fictionalized, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But as I was reading this book, I realized that that was actually true. They called her, um, they pretended she was royalty. And, you oh, know, wow. they, 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 like, there was like a line in the book I'm reading about it where they did actually kowtow. It was in jest, obviously, but um, huh. it was still this detail that I thought, oh, wow. That is so magic because you are reading this book now,
0: so after the poem has been written, right? Yes. <laughs> so it's in the wrong order in a way, right? Yes.
1: This book didn't wow. really exist when I was writing this poem. So oh. I, I did read like different essays and articles about her, but I there, there was never the luxury of a book. That is so interesting
0: because... Um, like the way that coincidences sort of happen on the page? There seems to be sort of a poetic logic or almost poetic justice to certain things. Oh my
1: goodness, yes. I definitely had like a, what I would call like poetry windfalls. I've come to expect this to be a part of my poetic process too. Because as much intention you can bring to your process of writing, I think that every once in a while you'll just find something that like shocks you, right? It um, mm. fills you with wonder and um, mm-hmm. this idea of things occurring simultaneously, right? Mm. Like different events happening at the same time. Like, uh, okay, um, Afamoy arrives in 1834. What was happening at the time in 1834? Right. Um, that... Is a part of recovery for a historian, right? Is kind of fleshing out the context even when we don't actually know the person, the person that we're focusing on. Um, right. So I think that's also a part of my poetic process is looking at timelines, looking at things occurring simultaneously. And that might not have anything to do with each other, but we can draw those connections with the poetic line. Right. And
0: when you come across something, as you just said, with Afong Moy, where you imagined her as, you know, a queen who let the Gawkers bow to her, you know, when you found confirmation that this actually happened, do you feel like, only a poet could get to
1: these truths. I I do think that the poet has tools that Uh can get close to a truth when the truth is unrecoverable in a way. And that's, I think, a lot of the beauty of poetry is that it can access the unknown in a way that maybe other conveyors of truth cannot. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't want to just record history either. You know, I, I wanted to reanimate a voice that has been lost.
0: The book is so much about the erasure of Asian American people throughout history, throughout pop culture. And it's such a gorgeous way to bring them back to life and to sort of undo partly... That erasure
1: yeah uh, yeah, and and I hope that I can contribute to that undoing, but I'm mm-hmm. also not you know audacious enough to say that I achieved that, right? I think that we're always moving toward something, we're moving toward a world that's better, that's more tolerable that's mm-hmm. that's easier to live in,
0: yeah. And have you gotten reactions from people, maybe fellow Asian-American readers who said that, yeah, you did make the world easier to live in?
1: Oh, man, I I have gotten a lot of notes from young Asian-American women. And that Mm -hmm. has meant a lot to me um, just because it's it's really hard to find the words for this particular experience in this particular type of body right Um, and I was attempting that um, because a lot of it is about being overexposed like being a spectacle being hyper visible and at the same time being invisible um, not being seen so there's so many contradictions to that experience and And I was able to connect with a lot of young Asian American women who felt that way. Yeah. And I think I think I was also looking at an experience that was also larger than racialized, Mm -hmm. sexualized history, but just the experience of being a person who's on social media and my readers, who might not necessarily be Asian-American women, mm-hmm. still were able to kind of connect to that and to yeah. understand that feeling of being seen and unseen at the same time. I think it's it's a feeling that translates to not just Asian-American women, but a, of, a lot of marginalized identities. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And I really love how you put so much agency and joy back into the lives of these women that have been erased. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I'm really hoping for a moment where we feel like we have agency over our own image. Yeah. Because that for me is what I've been grappling with in this book. And, you know, like like that feels to me like a utopia. A place where Our art is for us, by us, and it envisions a a more beautiful future, a more hopeful future.
0: Sally Wen Mao is the author of two poetry collections, Oculus from Grey Wolf Press and Mad Honey Symposium from Alice James Books. She has taught writing at Cornell University, Hunter College, Poets House and many more and was the recipient of the 2017 Pushcart Prize. You can find some of her poems on the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafoos. I'm Helena De Groot. And this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening.